So good morning, everybody. I uh, hope you had a good evening and a nice breakfast uh, at the breakfast symposiums. Um, let me start off with disclosure. So uh, these opinions uh, that I'm going to give you are mine and not that of uh, clinical of Collegium Pharmaceutical, and I am an employee of Collegium. So what I'm going to do over the next about 12 minutes or so uh, is to give you an overview, a high-level overview of some aspects of improving assay sensitivity. And what that really means is, what do we do, or how do we recognize if a trial is likely not to uh, succeed, and what can we do about that? So assay sensitivity is really defined as a property of a clinical study that defines the ability to distinguish uh, an effective treatment from a less effective or an ineffective treatment. The question of assay sensitivity is applicable uh, to any type of study, whether it's a phase three study or a specific study like a dose uh, response study or a clinical abuse potential study. And basically, a failed study or one that has poor assay sensitivity means either one of two things. Either the study drug uh, is ineffective, which is okay in its own right, right? or uh, the more problematic uh, option is that the study as designed and or conducted was not capable of distinguishing an effective treatment from placebo. So to illustrate kind of the, the problem here, or about 20% of uh, neuropathic pain trials were negative. And you can see here that these are fairly common drugs that we know work for neuropathic pain. So the question is, is why did all of these trials fail? And uh, a similar list could be easily created for chronic back pain, osteoarthritis, painful diabetic neuropathy, and so on. So I'm going to start off by, by taking a look at a couple of, uh, of uh, places to start. And one, when you're selecting uh, subjects for a study, is to look at uh, baseline pain variability. Here are two st studies, um, or two, two papers, that looked at this concept and you know, concluded that if you have large baseline pain variability, so that means that the subjects that are coming in there during the baseline period have, um, you know, uh, reported, they report pain uh, scale results that are quite, quite large, they're not uh, consistent, they're more likely to be placebo responders, and that's not a good thing. Other aspects of, of uh, baseline pain score and poor sensitivity, uh, say sensitivity include a subject that uh, you're screening and, and shows too many eights or nines. So on, a, on a pain intensity numerical rating scale or a visual analog scale, um, that's usually from zero to 10, zero being the, the uh, uh, no pain and 10 being the worst possible pain. If you're seeing a lot of consistent eight and nines, that might be a signal that, that subject just, did not, just does not understand how to use the scales. Similarly, if you have somebody who predominantly reports 10, well, that could be also a case of somebody who doesn't understand how to use those scales, but it also could be a sign that that patient is truly too sick to be enrolled into a clinical trial. And the last uh, concept here, or to look at around that baseline uh, part, part of the study, is that too short of a baseline. So we've seen in the past that people would have baseline periods of four out of seven days. That may not be enough time. In fact, uh, uh, some of the uh, more recent literature has shown that, that when you start increasing the, the, the baseline period to six or seven days out of seven days, as you end up having a better picture or, of the pain state of the, of, the, of the subject coming into the study. So let me move, move on to talking about subjects. Um, subjects use different strategies when asked to rate their pain. Uh, and that's a problem between, within patients and between patients. There was a study done by Williams um, in 2000 that asked the question of how bad is your pain? Typical question that, that we put into our, our pain studies. And they use VAS and NRS uh, uh, measures to, to address the question. And what you see here is that there was a plethora of different types of responses. As, and the reason why is because what went 
went into those responses widely varied based on the individual patient and internal external factors that were used to address the question. Um, so this presents basically a problem of, of um, increasing variability which you don't want in, in a clinical study. Another aspect of consideration around assay sensitivity is this concept of cognitive ability. Uh, we rarely take the time, you know, you could have a patient that, that um, passes all the, uh, the, the, the screening uh, tests, so all your, your blood work, or physical examination, and uh, meets all the inclusion criteria, uh, doesn't meet any of the exclusion criteria. But if that patient doesn't have the ability to, to translate his or her pain scores or is using the tools that you've trained them on, then it's a problem for, you know, for that patient uh, to be in the, uh, in the study. And then protocol adherence is, a, is the last concept I'm going to introduce here. Protocol adherence is a problem that if you have somebody that you have to really you know, work hard to convince to come into a trial, it may not be an optimal you know, patient or subject to come into that trial because as the likelihood of actually adhering to the protocol may be problematic. Yeah, so oh, it, that's a good comment. And I said, so a lot of the, the clinical trials that we do, in fact, almost all of them um, exclude, you know, we, there's an exclusion criteria around depression. And so, because you don't want that conflict, because a lot of the uh, antidepressants also have an analgesic effect. So you don't want that to have compound. Hold, hold that thought because I'll come back to, to the, that concept of, of what you coined professionalism. Um, so if the subjects differ in how accurately they report pain, that is a major problem. And this is something that you can actually determine before you start the trial. Uh, there are two methods that we, do, we use. Qualitative, uh, qualitative method, which is a simple, well, we use this in the pediatric uh, world, as simple as giving uh, an example of you know, scratching a mosquito bite open versus getting a finger caught in a car door. And after you, you've explained the tool, you want to make sure that, that they give you an appropriate response. It doesn't matter what the number is. What matters is that they, that they separate the pain scores. And then there are quantitative uh, tests, such as quantitative sensory testing, and there are, which are, are now offered by companies like Analgesic Solutions um, that have a package that you can uh, employ into your clinical trials. But this is also predicated on willingness of the participant to participate as well as to train. And training is, is very important in, in these clinical trials right from the start or, and, and throughout the course of the trials so that, that the tools are actually fresh in, in their minds. So one concept to, 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 to take home as well is that poor pain reporters may also be poor at basically discriminating analgesic effect. And if we look to our colleagues in the abuse liability world and look at their trial design, and they've been referred to as HAL studies, HAP studies, CAP studies, or clinical abuse potential studies. This is an example of that kind of, kind of study. And what you can see here is that at the, the third phase, there's a drug discrimination phase. And what that phase is designed to do is you'll give um, the, 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 the subject a, a similar class drug. So if you're studying an opioid, you would give them an IR opioid versus placebo in a blinded fashion. And what you're testing for there is to see, can the subject discriminate between the active and, and placebo? And if they can't discriminate, then they're actually discharged for, from the study before they go into the double line portion of the study. So this is, this is one study design um, that kind of you know, employed uh, this, uh, this uh, enhanced selection of subjects for, for purpose. 
So what are some of the other things that we can do to improve assay sensitivity? Well, strong baseline pain. I gave you a couple of points around baseline pain, but strong baseline pain has been shown that if, you, if your subjects rate greater than five uh, on the PINRS or VS scales, they uh, actually are better at discriminating between active and placebo. Uh, coupled with low variability in pain reporting, which basically, as I mentioned, is a function of compliance and skilled pain reporters, which is a function of training, that's an important aspect, and then duration of, the pain, of, of your pain condition. So it used to be that in chronic pain trials, the, the mark was, you know, if they had a history of three months of chronic pain, and, and now oh, um, uh, it's, it's more accepted that you actually look out, out to six months so you don't have a, a you know, fluctuation in the, in the pain condition. Another aspect to consider is increasing reliability by standardization. So what we want to do in these, in these studies is we want to minimize variability, uh, conduct variability as much as possible. In this case, we want to do things at the same time, use the same measures by the same people if possible and in the same place. So if you design a study, what you want to do is you want to make sure that they're assessing their pain in the morning at approximately X uh, you know, time and in the evening at approximately X time so that you remove some, some variables around uh, um, uh, around you know, moving the, your, your assessment times. And I'll give you an example of that in just a moment. And the, the last piece here are clear instructions. So recall that I mentioned that there was a study that was done that asked the question, how bad is your pain? And a lot of different things go into it. I'm sure that if we asked you know, people over here or, and they said, well, you know, what do you think about when I ask the question, how bad is your pain? Well, what if we refine that and we said, how bad is your pain taking into account all the times when you were awake, including times when you had no pain or low pain, and times when you had more pain, how would you rate your average pain intensity in the last week or during, during the last 24 hours, whatever the time interval is? What you're giving is you're giving them a cognitive frame so that everybody then narrows down what they're putting into their answer. So here's a, a, a study that was done quite a, quite a while ago, but the results are still applicable to the concept. So strong baseline pain. Here you can see that if you uh, look at the moderate baseline pain reporters, you could not separate a, uh, APAP encoding plus, uh, plus APAP and, uh, and placebo. Um, whereas if you had strong uh, baseline uh, pain, so greater than, than, than five, you, you clearly were able to, to differentiate. And similarly, along the concept of standardized procedures, one I mentioned, you know, same time. So diurnal variation, you know, plays a significant role in, in how you're potentially going to re respond to your outcome measure questions. Uh, circadian rhythms and, you know, have been shown to play an effect in pain, stiffness, and uh, manual dexterity and rheumatoid arthritis. Temporal characteristics uh, are also oh, uh, significant in PDN and uh, post-herpetic neuralgia. Uh, so this gives you a, an idea that if you vary the times, you may be introducing an artificial confound into, the, into the, what, the, what the patients or subjects are actually reporting. Another piece is missing data. So I'd be remiss if I didn't mention at least something on this. Many individuals are unable or unwilling to use EDC, electronic data capture, or, or e-diaries. And you need to know this before you actually start the study. So e-diaries have been shown over the last years that they're certainly you know, better. They improve assay sensitivity over paper. 
And there are a number of publications out there that say that you still get X number percentage of missing data. Um, I'd, I'd argue that, that maybe it's kind of older data that with the societal shift to, you know, uh, the e-technology with galaxies, iPads, you know, iPhones, etc., people are more familiar. Um, but that's not where you have to stop. To really, have, to really break you know, beyond the 70% compliance into the greater than 98% compliance, you need to employ a, a data review coordinator in, in your clinical study. And that data review coordinator has one function. That person comes in and every morning looks at uh, the, the data, the, the output, and looks for blank space. And if there's a blank, and then that person calls the clinical site to get in touch with the, the subject to find out, oh, did they forget? Was there a problem with the diary? Hey, are they planning on doing it before the lockout uh, uh, that following day? So that's an important piece. And this all goes down to, oh, uh, to minimize uh, missing data, which really threatened the validity of the study. So it's important to have the right device, the right training, and also to have the right support for your study. I'm only going to mention one thing briefly about this. This was a study that was done by Nat Katz and Bob Dworkin, where they looked at various attributes of clinical studies, clinical study design on improving assay sensitivity. And I want to draw your attention to one thing, and, and that's the use of uh, con meds and rescue meds. Uh, if you're designing a study, a lot of the opioid studies you know, you fail because you would have your a study drug uh, uh, and it would be compared essentially against your IR rescue medication. And so one of the proposals was, is to not use an IR opioid, but to rather use something like APAP. So you have a rescue medication, but you're really testing your opioid versus your comparator, placebo in most cases in the United States. Uh, as far as sites go, so most of us have, have, you know, who have run clinical trials have seen that some sites perform better, other sites you know, oh, don't perform as well, and there are a variety of reasons. But when we talk about kind of the, the quality of the data, uh, there too, there are a number of reasons, and so many of them I've, I've mentioned, but I want to draw attention to one thing on this slide, and that's uh, this point of being neutral. Uh, so as my, my colleague in the audience uh, you know, had mentioned er earlier, one of the key things in, in a clinical trial is to basically establish neutrality. Hey, so when you're teaching a clinical study site, all the, the study site personnel that are going to interact with the, with the study subject should talk about the study in a very neutral way, so you don't set up any expectations. And where I'll uh, finish off here is, this, uh, is uh, the study design that's now being used uh, in, uh, in uh, chronic pain trials that is kind of you know, borrowed or, or lends to itself from the clinical abuse potential studies. And this is an enriched enrollment randomized withdrawal study where you start off with a screening phase and then you have that titration phase, kind of akin to the drug extermination phase. The titration phase, you basically start your, your, uh, your uh, subjects on the, the drug that you're st studying and you titrate slowly to effect. So to touch on predefined effect for some predefined time. And if they uh, meet that, that uh, outcome measure, then they would proceed into the double-blind portion. If they didn't, if they were non-responders, then it would be withdrawn for, from the study. So this is why it's called enrichment enrollment randomized withdrawal design. Uh, it selects out non-responders. It's well-established, accepted by the FDA, and it's also recommended by M. Impact. And I'll stop here with, with impact and what impact is. So if you're not familiar with the initiative on methods, measurement, and pain assessment in clinical trials, this is a public partner, public 
public-private partnership that started about 13 years ago by Bob Dworkin and Dennis Turk that really uh, convened meetings once or twice a year and from those meetings published consensus recommendations on how to improve various aspects of clinical trials pertaining to, to analgesic drugs. So if, you have, if you're not familiar with this, it's a really good place to read all the impact consensus, uh, the, uh, consensus statements to, to give you a good basis of, of, of what you're getting into when doing clinical research in, in, uh, uh, with analgesics. And this is just a summary slide that kind of goes over the highlights of what, uh, what I talked about. So thank you very kindly. And do you want to take questions now, or do you want to? Yes, yes we, we have a couple minutes. If uh, you'd like to ask Dr. Kopecki a question. So I'm blind. I can't see anybody on this side of the room because of the light. So if you have your hand up, sorry, I can't see you. Nope. Oh, OK. All right. Was your question from earlier addressed? OK. So I'm going to call. OK. Thank Dr. you very much. And then uh, we're going to, you know, in the interest of time again, we're going to let everybody give you their own background. But next is Dr. Frank Breve. We'll also, hopefully, we'll have time at the end for questions for any of us. Hi, my name's Frank Revy. I'm going to talk to you today a little about pharmacoeconomics and outcomes research and how this is applicable to pain clinical trials. So this is a very basic presentation, but I just want you to understand some of the terminology related to pharmacoeconomics, uh, the importance of pharmacoeconomics and clinical trial design, um, the value of patient reported outcomes in clinical trials, and we're going to talk about uh, a pharmacoeconomic analysis involving some pain medications. This is Temple University Hospital, greeting from Philadelphia. This is where I practiced at the pharmacy school next to the hospital, and I actually, it's one of the sites where I'm able to utilize some of the data to do some of the research projects that we're involved in. Um, I have nothing to disclose, but before I delve into the definition of pharmacoeconomics, I was thinking about this, and one of the things I think is overshadowed when we look at cost, overall cost, is actually the big picture, what we're dealing with. Uh, I went back, and um, in the mid-60s, around the time that Medicare was implemented, it's 1966, the Annual health care expenditures in the United States, does anyone have an idea what that was back then? It's around $500 billion per year. That's what we spent on health care. So since that time, it actually doubled to a trillion dollars in 1996, which is a period of 30 years. Uh, and it went from $1 trillion to $2 trillion in a, in a, in a short period of time, 10 years, 2006, and this year, the total health care cost nationwide is projected to be $4 trillion. So this is a geometric progression that I think is unsustainable. I, I mean, when you look at the, the um, gross domestic product, 
of the country, the total output of everything we, we do here in, in, in the United States, um, it's coming up on 20% of the uh, GDP. That's what we're, you know, healthcare is, is taking. So there's a, there's a great um, emphasis on reducing costs, drug costs. Now, even though drug costs are relatively uh, a small portion of the healthcare pie, around 10%, but there is a high level of scrutiny, and with pharmacoeconomics, you can make the case of justify the high cost of dr certain drugs in that the total outcomes. Oh, you can't hear me? Okay. The total outcomes are reduced uh, relative to the cost of the drug. So that's what we strive to do. Um, we're looking at economic, clinical, and humanistic outcomes, ECHO of pharmaceutical products and services. Um, we're comparing the economic resources consumed to produce the health and economic consequences of products or services. Um, this is applicable to the, the basic economic model where we're looking at the, um, the, um, the, the resources and the outcomes. But the, the, the problem is that we have um, finite resources, and we have infinite demand, supply and demand. So we want to quantify the value of pharmaceutical care. And we do this by doing a pharmacoeconomic analysis, which entails three components, the clinical, economic, and humanistic factors that we look at when we do this type of analysis. Um, and you can see the economic factors are uh, cost-based, total cost, uh, direct medical cost, indirect medical cost, non-medical cost, um, the clinical, of course, and the clinical trials, the, the efficacy, safety, side effect profiles, and the humanistic component, which is difficult to quantify, but it's something that you're going to see increased in corporation in, in the, um, the clinical trials because this is very important. This is patient-centered outcomes, uh, how the patient responds to the therapy, uh, how well they're doing, activities of daily living, satisfaction, quality of life, those type of aspects. So pharmaceutical care is uh, the promotion of rational drug therapy for positive outcomes, um, op optimal outcomes, actually. And outcomes research is defined as studies that attempt to identify, measure, and evaluate the end result of healthcare services in general. So the impact of pharmacoeconomics on clinical trials, it's increasingly playing, playing a, a key role. There are uh, uh, large pharma companies have uh, health economics uh, teams working with clinical trials. Right now it's about 15%. Uh, that actually are incorporating um, pharmacoeconomic data into the clinical trials, and that number is, is projected to increase. Uh, the main reason, of course, is reimbursement. These companies are spending a lot of money and resources to market these drugs, and they, they want to ensure um, favorable formulary decisions. And they have these um, HEOR teams, now part of the medical affairs department in, in uh, the large uh, pharmaceutical companies, and there's increased use of patient-reported outcomes. The definition there, it's an umbrella term that includes outcome data reported directly by the patient. Uh, it's, 
you want to describe the patient's condition and response to treatment. This is very important. Uh, it includes global impressions, functional status, well-being, um, health-related quality of life, et cetera. And the value in clinical trials is that these are unique and complementary indicators of disease activity. They provide important data for evaluating the effectiveness of the treatment and provide pre precise, reliable, valid, and producible data. And it's essential for evidence-based practice. Professional organizations recognize the key role of um, patient-reported outcome data. And they actually um, develop clinical practice guidelines based on this reporting. Um, and the inclusion in clinical trials is sanctioned by the FDA, though it's not a requirement. Some countries do require pharmacoeconomic data to be um, included in the submission process for a new drug. I, I don't know when that's going to happen in this country, but it's the trend is moving towards, towards that, that way. So it is important in drug development because clinical response endpoints alone can underestimate treatment benefit. And PROs represent logical extensions of clinical effects, and we need this to understand the quality in addition to quantity of life, especially with oncology drugs, for instance, which can cost easily $100,000 or more per year. So the emphasis is on patient-centered care. The Institute of Medicine um, promotes that, and this is something that patients um, want, should be involved in their care, and they should have say in, in, in what type of therapy they're getting, and they should be reporting uh, their experiences of, of how these drugs are affecting them um, and how it affects their daily life and quality of, quality of living. So the FDA accepts acceptance and promotion. Uh, they provide guidance for measurement. And with future drug development, I'm going to, you're going to see that this is going to be an important aspect of that. In terms of... Uh, how pharmacoeconomics and outcomes enhance clinical trials design, well, the reimbursement considerations, of course, um, ensure that the trials are produced the data that, and analysis that payers need to make favorable formulary decisions, and also the ethical considerations which demonstrate a commitment to individual patients and stewardship of the public good. So um, you're, you're collecting uh, pharmacoeconomic data to di distinguish clinical clinician practice, uh, you have efficacy data, which is cost in uh, clinical and humanistic data, and cost data, resources consumed to uh, achieve efficacy endpoints or your return on investment. So the efficacy data endpoints are based on evidence which enables clinicians to optimize prescribing skills and evidence-based healthcare is the determination of the mix of those services, drug products, and procedures that optimize benefits and reduce risk. The cost data is resource consumption management enables patients to maximize purchasing power at the individual level for insurance co-pays, at the group level, managing insurance premiums across groups, and at the government level for sustaining uh, public programs. The economics of drug therapy can be broken down into direct medical cost, and they're listed there, uh, direct non-medical cost, uh, indirect cost, and intangible cost, which is reflective of the humanistic element, uh, the holistic element, if you will. Uh, 
Um, these are types of pharmacoeconomic analyses. Uh, there's five types. Uh, four of them um, um, are, require outcomes. Um, the first one, the cost of illness, is, is basically uh, a baseline assessment of a disease state where you're just looking at costs. There's no outcomes involved here. And you're looking, say, diabetes, what is the prevalence, what is the incidence, what is the morbidity, mortality, and you add up all those costs and you come up with a number of the annual cost of society for diabetes. And drug companies can use that to, to uh, um, think about new products that there might be unmet needs and, and this would help uh, foster new discovery. Cost minimization analysis is, is, is the least, uh, I would say, the one that you don't see as much as the other ones in terms of the being used to do an analysis. And in order to do that analysis, you have to demonstrate uh, equivalence in comparative groups. They have to be equal outcomes. And then you determine the least costly alternative. Uh, with a cost-benefit analysis, you compare costs and benefits of the alternative, and then that's expressed as a cost a ratio, benefit to cost ratio, and it's purely based on price. Um, the cost-effective analysis compares alternatives with different safety and efficacy profiles and ex expresses an average or incremental cost-effectiveness ratio. The cost-benefit analysis and cost-effectiveness analysis are the, are the two main types of analysis that you usually see with a pharmacoeconomic study. And finally, the cost-utility analysis integrates the patient's effectiveness and health-related quality of life and is expressed in quality-adjusted life years. And you're seeing more of those types of analyses. When you do a pharmacoeconomic uh, analysis, you have to put it in the proper perspective and the point of view, it's really four Ps. I, I put society instead of public, but it's provider, patient, payer, and public. And uh, based on, on, on that, um, whatever you're, you're um, gearing the, the, the analysis to, you, you, know, you would make informed decisions based on different levels. Uh, finally, when you have uh, your conclusions from your, from your uh, analysis, things may change depending on the uncertainty of the costs and the effects considered. So you have to do a sens sensitivity analysis to look at, at um, altering variables, recalculating, and then confirming the validity of the conclusions. And, and I have some examples of, of that. Um, and this is increasingly important as assumptions are made to a greater degree. Um, in doing a pharmacoeconomic analysis, you want to do a literature review. Um, you look at journals, databases, um, quality of the uh, qualifications of the researchers, um, assess for bias in title and abstract, that's, that's the study methodology. Uh, you look at the sponsorship, potential bias, and you have to analyze the results, of course, to, to uh, look for possible reasons as to whether or not the conclusions are, are, are justified, how they're reached. Um, and when you have the pharmacoeconomic analysis, it can be used in clinical decision making. In, a, in the hospital sector, um, for instance, uh, formulary consideration, getting the drug on formulary. 
is there an appropriate pl place for tapentadol? I wanted to use a brand name. They said you can't use a brand name versus conventional opiates, generic opiates on a, a teaching hospital formulary. And um, I can, is any hospital pharmacist here? Well, the way this happens uh, at, during the P&T committee, um, the, the monograph of the new dr or the drug up for consideration is, is reviewed and is um, put together containing pharmacoeconomic data. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a consistent process, and some of the data is good data, some is not too good. And uh, in order, what it really comes down to, to getting a, a drug on the formulary today, you have to have a, pro a proponent or a champion um, that really wants the drug, usually a physician with a pain med, it would be an orthopedist or, or, or a neurologist or a rheumatologist that comes at a meeting and can talk about why this drug should be on the formulary from a cost perspective in, in terms of looking at the overall outcomes. And to make that case, you would have a better chance of getting that drug on the formulary. Uh, you have clinical decision-making for acute therapy. For instance, choosing between a triptan or combination analgesics for acute migraine headache. Um, yes. I have one more minute. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, let's do talk about a couple examples uh, involving um, pain from which a pharmacoeconomic analysis uh, resulted in some treatment decisions. Uh, we're, you're well aware of the cost of society for osteoarthritis. Um, the the uh, analysis showed that NSAIDs are inexpensive compared to a COX-2 inhibitor. But the question is, why won't the more expensive agent pay for itself many times over by preventing a GI bleed in, in the patient? Um, we know that the, the, uh, the GI symptoms are decreased by 15%, and clinically significant ulcer complications are reduced by 50%. These seems like great numbers, but you have to take it, uh, you have to look at the overall picture because the, the amount of um, overall ulcer complications are only 1% to 2%. So if you're claiming a 50% reduction, you're, t you're talking about a, re a relatively um, small amount. And so it might not merit the decision to just use that drug. Um, and this is the, the clinical decision-making. Um, no history of GI bleed, choose naproxen. With a history of GI bleed, choose a COX-2 inhibitor. Um, so the decision should, should be made with the awareness of the effect of the added risk for cardiovascular events on cost-effectiveness. There's not enough information currently, but if you're going to use a COX-2 inhibitor, you might want to consider um, um, using not using it for somebody that has cardiovascular side effects. Uh, the other thing you have to consider is uh, if a patient is on concurrent medication that might interact with um, the COX-2 uh, or the conventional NSAID, that should be a consideration. If somebody is on low-dose aspirin, you would want to use um, a selective uh, NSAID to, to, to avoid the uh, reduction in the cardioprotective effect. So the conclusion is that time and money can only be spent once. Choice is inevitable, whether done con unconsciously or within a consistent process. Healthcare professionals are constantly evaluating patient care choices and acting on them. And pharmacoeconomics and outcomes research can enhance clinical trial design by strengthening the evaluation process and increasing the probability that better value is delivered in patient care. 
And that's about it. I'm sorry for going over. Good morning. So over the past couple of years, I've been up here, and I, I'll introduce myself in a, in a moment, but I, it was about just the clinical trials, the types of designs, and Ernest went into a lot of that. But now we have a different issue that has impacted clinical trials. It's people's interpretation of what is pharma doing in order to approve drugs? Is it a legitimate study design? Are we looking at the right patients? Are we only looking at a small number of patients or a particular subtype of patients to get our drugs approved? And is this a dubious method that we're using in order to get drugs approved? And that has led, and some people, mostly politicians and the media, have connected clinical trial design to abuse, misuse, and diversion in the United States. So I want to bring things back to a more realistic approach as to what actually, why we do some of the things we do. Over the past couple of years, I've been up here and I presented a lot of different ideas for clinical trials. And Ernest talked about sensitivity of those clinical trials and how you identify the right endpoints. So we're going to move beyond that and just talk about a little bit more controversial area in clinical trial research when it comes to paying clinical trials for extended release long-acting opioids. So as part of my disclosure, I'll tell you who I am. I am the head of medical affairs at Pernix Therapeutics. Everything I say today is my own opinion, and Pernix had nothing to do with it. And actually, I'm going to talk mostly as a, a case study on oxymorphone, and I will disclose that at the time that oxymorphone ER was approved, I was an employee of endopharmaceuticals. But I'm just using them as a case study because they're the only legitimate case study we currently have for what I'm about to talk about. So some of the learning objectives. I want to talk about what is it that we do? Why, do, why have clinical trials to get extended release long-acting opioids changed over the course of the past decade? So I'm going to talk about what the classic randomized placebo-controlled design is like, and we're going to talk about the enriched enrollment randomized withdrawal design. And every clinical trial has its pros and cons. I'm going to show how, briefly talk about the placebo effect, but won't talk about that much, as Ernest did mention that in his presentation, and the generalizability of the data that you get when you're looking at enriched enrollment randomized withdrawal design. So what is the best way to approve an extended release long-acting opioid? You know, the FDA has their scientific board. They met last March, and they came out with some recommendations, some points that were important. One was that the FDA relies too much on enriched enrolled study populations in order to approve opioids. They want to know why the FDA is, doesn't go back to the old way, just the standard randomized placebo-controlled trial. They mentioned that the data that, we, that the FDA has is only for subpopulations, and that's why there are so many different opioids, because everyone is studied in a different population. Well, think about this for a moment. When you're treating your patients, you don't know which opioid is going to work in which patient. There's no biomarkers yet for, we've started genomic testing for, for our patients in some cases, but we don't know which opioid is going to work in which patient. So you try the medication you're most comfortable with, and if that works for that patient and they have tolerable side effects, then that's great, and if they don't, you move to the next one that you're most comfortable with. And it's a sequence, sometimes it's a paradigm that's written down in your office, or a lot of times it's just what's in your head. So keep that in mind as we go through this, that that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a lot of unknowns. And one is, which medication is going to work for which patient? And there's been lots of publications about 
whether or not enriched enrollment withdrawal design is a dubious type of clinical trial in order to trick the FDA into approving drugs that shouldn't be approved. But I don't think anybody in this audience is going to argue that an opioid doesn't work for pain. Not every opioid works for every patient, but that opioids as a general class don't work to treat pain to some degree. So let's talk about what that design, the original design was. It's the classic design. I think I actually have a pointer. Yeah. So you, can't, you pick a, a chronic pain population, whatever that may be. It could be mixed pain population. They have to have some level of pain in the moderate to severe range. They may or may not be on prior medications, weak opioids or COX-2s, NSAIDs, acetaminophen, but they won't, they're washed out of that medication. And then they're randomized, and they either get active or they got placebo. These studies were two to four weeks. At some point, maybe in the middle, there was a titration step. But when the patients came in, they only got a single dose. There was no titration to effect. They were just randomly assigned a particular dosing treatment, and that's what they were followed. And along with the endpoint that happened at the end of the study, we looked at reasons for patient withdrawal, lack of efficacy, adverse events, because we're looking to see, is the drug effective and is it generally well tolerated? And if you don't have that combination, then the FDA isn't going to approve the medication. So as I mentioned, I'm going to use oxymorphone ER as my case study because they were the last medication that went through both parts of this scenario. So originally, when they went for approval, they had a lot of short-term studies, two weeks, a month, 10 days, 18 days. And this is just one of those trials that has, has been published. They took patients who had chronic OA pain. They had to be over 40 years old. They had to have a pain score greater than 40 on that 0 and 100 scale. And they could have been on some non-opioid or a weak opioid. They were washed out for two to seven days. And then they were randomly assigned. 20 milligrams of extended-release oxymorphone twice a day, oxycodone-controlled-release 10 milligrams twice a day, or placebo. So no titration, right on to 20 milligrams. And if you look through the prescribing information for these products, they don't start at these, at these doses. They actually start lower. There was no comparison between the two opioids. The only reason oxycodone was in this study was as a positive control to show that the study design was the correct design and effective. At the end of two weeks, half of the 20 milligram oxymorphone group had their dose increased to 40 milligrams in one, twice a day in one step. So no titration again, they were forced up. Whether the patient needed more medication or not, that's what they got. The oxycodone group similarly had their dose doubled, placebo group continued. The interesting part of the study is that that primary endpoint wasn't actually week four, although it was a four-week study, it was actually week three. So let's look at the efficacy. Well, we see a pretty decent efficacy for our placebo group. That can happen. We see that a lot. There's a whole set of literature now showing that there's a rise in placebo response in pain trials as there is in other subjectively measured therapeutic areas like psychiatry. The oxycodone group, although decreases, does not separate from placebo. We'll talk about that in a moment. The 20 milligram group decreased the pain and it stayed relatively stable. And those that got 40 milligrams at week two 
they saw an even greater improvement in their pain score. This lack of separation with oxycodone-controlled release to placebo is probably because they didn't pick the right dose. Remember what I said? These were just assigned doses from literature that they had decided this would be the right dose for this study, and it may not be the right dose. So that's why it may not, because no one here is going to argue that oxycontin or oxycodone-controlled release doesn't work to treat pain. Now the other side. So now we've shown you efficacy, but let's look at the tolerability. Because we're now dumping large amounts of opioid on these poor subjects who entered into these clinical trials, we see nausea at 60%. There was no time for them to acclimate to the medication. They were just giving this, these high doses of opioid all at once. Nausea, somnolence, dizziness, all very high, making the drug appear to be intolerable because they were having such adverse events. And if we look at patient disposition, it proves that it was intolerable because the majority of the patients in the oxymorphone group and in the oxycodone group all withdrew from the study due to lack of, oh, I'm sorry, due to adverse events. Not due to lack of efficacy, but due to adverse events. So now less than half or approximately half of the patients actually complete the study. So how do you have good efficacy? Well, it's probably an artifact of using lapse observation carry forward, a statistical method that's standard for measuring all clinical trials when the patient or subject leaves the study, you take their last point in time that you have a measurement, and you carry that to the end. So the question becomes, would you approve this medication? You've just shown that it's efficacious by the, by the method that you use, but it appears to be intolerable. Well, I can tell you what the FDA said. They said, no, it's not approvable in this. You have got to prove to us that although you have efficacy, your drug is tolerable. Because if someone can't continue to take your medication, it's as good as not being effective at all, especially with the high dropout rates due to adverse events. So now it's back to the drawing board. What do you do? Because Endo, at the time, also got caught in the new world order of the FDA, changing how pain clinical trials are done for chronic conditions. Instead of being these short two- to four-week studies, now they're mandating a 12-week placebo-controlled trial. So now they have to come back and do at least one study showing that the drug is tolerable and efficacious over the course of this 12 weeks. So what do you do? Well, the brain trust back at the time, and I will admit I was not part of that brain trust. I was just there. They came up with a design that had already been used once to get another endo product approved, Lidoderm and it was an enriched enrollment randomized withdrawal design. And it wasn't Endo's idea to come up with this design. This design had been in the literature from at least 1975 when Amory and Donnie talked about it as a way to get drugs approved and remove the, or reduce the impact that placebo had on clinical trials. So drugs that had large placebo effects you could reduce the placebo effect and show that you're just seeing an effect from the medication. But along with that, you have the unsettled circularity where you're going to show that in the study design that the drug that you've already shown works in a group of patients or people continues to work in that group of people. But what is the enriched enrollment part? So you take the screening. It's the same type of situation as the last 
study design. It's a pain, chronic pain population, moderate to severe pain. In this case, they had to be open, well, in the study I'll show you, they were opioid experienced, but they could be opioid naive. And you titrate them to effect, just like you would in clinical practice. You start low, go slow, over four to six weeks, you titrate them to a stable pain control of mild pain with tolerable side effects. And if they don't have those criteria, then they're withdrawn from the study. So they're, the lack of efficacy or the intolerable side. So now you've enriched your population to those who respond to the drug, and now the non-responders are removed, just like you would in clinical practice. You don't keep a patient on a medication if they're not responding to the medication or if their side effects are so great that they can't take the drug and can't tolerate it. So that is close as we could come to clinical practice. And then if they meet that criteria, they're randomized to either stay on their medication at the dose they were on or they get placebo and they follow for 12 weeks. And you look at those that withdraw due to adverse events or lack of efficacy. So here's one example of that study. Endo actually did two, one in opioid naive and one opioid experienced. Just gonna quickly talk about the opioid experienced and then we will show the difference between the two studies and where you end up and why this is a relatively effective method for studying extended release opioids or any opioid or any medication that requires titration. And you, it's not an antibiotic where you're just giving that one dose. So these, these subjects come in, in this case they were chronic low back pain, they stopped their prior meds and then they were converted and titrated to a stable dose of oxymorphone extended release. And then if they met that criteria and didn't, and they could be stabilized, meaning they could get to pain control and tolerable side effects, they were then randomized to either stay on that dose of oxymorphone or they received placebo. In the past couple of years, we've gotten a little bit smarter where now we put a taper into the placebo group so that way, the, the subjects who wind up randomized to placebo, they aren't going through withdrawal, or we'll, at least we're reducing the chance that they go through withdrawal, because A, it's not good for them, makes them sick, and B, it's not good for the study, because it can potentially break the blind. Back when this study was done, they gave unlimited rescue for the first four days or so of the study in order to do the same thing. And then the subjects were followed for up to 12 weeks and it's in up to 12 weeks. Now you're expecting the placebo group who had stable pain control, you're expecting, now you've taken away their medication, their pain will increase and they will draw from the study because of their, their lack of pain control. And sure enough, that's what you, what you find. They start here, at an, and these are means, so it starts at about a 70, the drop after titration is about a third, about 23, and then Pain control for the oxymorphone group is stable, but the placebo group gets worse as a population. Adverse events. This adverse event profile looks a whole lot better than the last study that I showed you, where now, once they were in that titration phase, they could acclimate slowly to the opioid. Their adverse events went from that 60, 30, 25% level down to in the teens and then in the blinded period even less as the patients had become acclimated. Also in that first study, they weren't given a bowel regimen for, their, for those subjects where in this study they were. Looking at patient disposition, 
29% of all of the patients in the oxymorphone group withdrew for some reason. But very few, only 8% for lack of efficacy and only 7 for adverse events. And if you look at the placebo group, this is more what you expect. The majority of the placebo patients withdraw due to lack of efficacy because their pain got worse. 39% versus an 8% for adverse events. So 73% of those subjects did not complete the 12 weeks of treatment. And based on using last observation carry forward, similar statistical analysis, you saw those efficacy curves. So now you've shown that the, you can design a study and show that not only is the drug effective for treating pain, but it also is tolerable if you titrate just like you do in clinical practice. What's that? Oh, good, because I'm almost done. So some of the strengths are, it, we at least, this is our closest we could come up with for chronic pain for studying in a clinical way, because one of the main questions the representatives get when they enter your offices is, how does this relate to clinical practice? How does your clinical trial relate to clinical practice? That first section of the, of the enriched enrollment randomized withdrawal design does that. So it limits the patient exposure to placebo, increases the overall sensitivity, and that's what was important. As Ernest pointed out, the generalizability is an issue in that it is generalizable to the population that responds to that opioid. Not everybody responds to every opioid, but how do you pick that? There's no biomarkers. So as I mentioned at the start, it's about you're going to have to go with what you're familiar with, what you're comfortable with, and if that doesn't work, you move to the next and the next. It's all about treating that patient as an individual. There's some carryover effects potentially that are usually negated in the long-term study, but the trial duration's longer because now you not only have 12 weeks that you have to do, but you've also added four to six weeks up front. And in comparing the two, you still have in both versions of this studying a randomized, placebo-controlled, parallel group study. The difference being that in the enriched enrollment, you've actually got them, you didn't just dump a random dose of medication onto a chronic pain patient, but actually titrated them to their particular dose and then studied that group of patients as individuals of a group out for the extended period of time. And I left in just one piece of Dr. Moore when he published this, not widely accepted or well understood. It's the well understood part. Even the advisors to the FDA did not understand what the point of this study design is. And this, the media will pick up on anything to talk about to make us make these drugs look bad, regardless of any of the real information. So with that, there's two study designs that I, that I presented as, as comparisons. Thankfully to, to Endo, they were the only ones who had gone through this because for the past decade, every extended release long-acting opioid has used the enriched enrollment randomized withdrawal design to get approval generally been accepted by the FDA and, and most scientists who understand the difference in these situations as being a, a decent design. There's always a better design. Every design has its flaws. No design is perfect because remember the other important thing about clinical trials when pharma runs them, to get approval for pain, we're responsible to show the FDA that we can reduce a number. You treating your, your patients, your responsibility to your patients is however you you manage them, 
but you're treating to function. It's not always about a pain score. It's about improving their function and their ability to, to do what they want to do. And so we have different objectives, but trying to bring alternatives to the marketplace so that you have a choice because you don't know which medication is going to work in which patient. And with that, I will take any questions if I have time. Yeah, we have time just for one very quick one, and then we will at the end. Okay. Is the FDA talking to the CDC? <laughs> well, I, can't answer, I can only answer based on what's in the news. So one moment when they came out with the draft guidelines, the CDC's draft guidelines, the FDA said that was based on, on junk science. And then a few months later, they said, wow, those are really great guidelines. We're right there supporting you. So well, they, they approve all this stuff, and then the, then the CDC said we shouldn't use anything, and then what's going on? Well, the, the CDC, it all, well, we could have a whole <laughs> presentation on that, and there actually was one, and, and Dr. Fuden yesterday and the, and the group that presented did a pretty good job breaking down what is wrong with the guidelines and the way they were constructed. Yeah. So, okay, thank you. So we can come... Can you hold your question to the end? Is it because I want to make sure we get everybody in? Yeah. Thank you. So next up is Robert Taylor. And, and I don't know, I don't know what your presentation is in here. So is it hiding? Close mine. Oh, look, we can do this. Nice Beautiful. <laughs> Well, good morning, everyone. Um, again, my name is Robert Taylor. Uh, today, I'm going to be speaking to you about publishing your data. So we just heard some great talks about um, how to set up or design your trials, um, and then how to put in uh, really good assessments and make sure that those assessments are done correctly. But once you have all this great data and you've, you've run this incredible trial, what do you do with it? Um, a lot of times, of course, a lot of it gets submitted to the FDA if you're, <clears throat> if you're working to get your drug approved. Um, other times, if it's an investigator-initiated trial and you're just looking to gather more information, uh, you're looking to publish the data. So my talk today is to kind of go through um, the step-by-steps that you would take in order to get that published. Um, past couple years, I've given this talk, I've actually geared it more towards or described um, the actual design of the manuscript itself. Um, as I've come across publishing um, multiple manuscripts, there is actually a lot more involved than just writing the manuscript. Um, nowadays, with everything going electronic, a lot of the journals have everything that you submit online. Um, there's tons and tons of data that is getting published. Um, there is a lot more things that you have to do in order to make sure that your data is legitimate, that the authors that are on the publication are, you know, they have actually contributed to the work. Um, and again, now that everything is electronic, it's very easy to see if you're copying data from other people, if you're pulling paragraphs from review articles, or even if you're just manipulating data um, from, other, from other published work. Um, so there's a lot that you have to worry about and that you have to look into, and so I'm going to kind of go into some of those things. Um, at the end of this presentation, I do have a bunch of slides going into how you should design your manuscript. So I believe these slides are online, um, so if you pull those off the last... I believe 25 slides or so um, go into those, those steps, basically designing your abstract, your introduction, discussion, results, and things like that. 
Um, I'm actually an employee of NEMA Research. Uh, we are a full-service clinical research organization. Um, one of the units that we have at uh, NEMA Research is our medical informatics or medical writing. Um, so a lot of the information that I'm presenting to you today is based on my own experience, um, publishing works for a number of different pharmaceutical companies, um, biotech companies, but also um, publishing our own work. Um, we do do some, uh, our own research trials, um, so we do publish our own work. Uh, and again, the learning objectives, uh, as I mentioned, is to really show you a lot of the things outside of writing the manuscript. Um, some of the online sources that you have to pay attention to, um, you know, selecting your journal, that's a, that's a huge part, uh, selecting your authors and how to represent your authors in your manuscript. Um, so those are the things that we're going to go through today. Uh, I always like to start this off with uh, an acceptance letter, because this is what everyone hopes to see when they submit their work. Generally, you hope to see it on the first submission. Um, and so this is kind of what you should be working for, is this, this type of um, response from, from whatever journal that you submit to. Uh, publish or perish. Um, this was something that, this, was, this picture I actually had sitting um, taped on my, my lab bench in grad school. Um, this was one thing that was always talked about, publish or perish. Um, a lot of principal investigators, this is what they lived by because obviously if they didn't publish, um, they wouldn't be able to get any type of funding. Um, nowadays, I don't think you have to worry too much about this. Um, there is a journal out there that will accept your work. Um, I can guarantee you that. Um, it may not be your first choice or your second choice, but somewhere along the line, you'll find a journal that will take your work. Um, so publishing nowadays it has a high success rate, but getting into the journal that you want, that, that's a different story. So the first thing that you really should look at is the, the journal. Um, a lot of the journals, you know, obviously they have different audiences. Um, so really you have to look at the work and what your, your overall message will be um, and who you want to target. Do you want to target primary practitioners or primary physicians, nurses? Um, so that plays a big part because every journal nowadays is different. They have different guidelines, they have different formats. Um, so if you start with that initially, that will help you design your manuscript um, because they have different ways in terms of how you're supposed to set up your abstract, how you're supposed to present your results, um, and all of the different things in terms of um, disclosures that you have to present. So really start with the journal, figure out what your audience is because that will then allow you to select it, um, and then go from there by picking the author guidelines and, and following, following those guidelines in terms of how to set up your manuscript. Um, other things to consider when selecting a journal, just not just the audience, but journal fees, um, time to submission. Um, nowadays, you know, some journals might take months from the time that you submit to the time that you, um, it actually gets published. Everything nowadays is going electronic or already is electronic. Um, so generally what happens is you do have an initial draft that gets uh, EPUBed or um, pub published online. Um, before you actually go through and you review your gallery proofs and everything. So basically a first draft gets up there, but that all does take time. Um, there are still journals that still will send things in print, um, but a lot of them are moving away from that because, again, everything is electronic. Um, whether or not the journal is indexed. Some of these journals are not within the big databases like PubMed or um, Embassy. So again, what is your audience? How many people do you want to reach? Um, some journals are open access, some are still subscription-based. 
So again, that will limit the amount of people that will see your article. Um, if it's open access, anyone in the world can see it. Um, if it's subscription-based, that particular person has to um, subscribe to that journal in order to see it. Or if they find it on, in a database, they have to pay you know, a single fee to, to download it. Um, impact factor, what, how, you know, how big is that particular impact number? Is it, is it a JAMA? Is it a, you know, a nature, um, if you're you know, basic science? Um, or is it you know, some new journal that just came out that doesn't even have an impact factor, but they have a lot of better, you know, their publication timeline is very short, their open access fee is, is cheap. Um, so those are the things that you really kind of have to con consider when, when picking a journal. And again, I kind of went into the, the open access and the subscription. Um, generally, the open access fee ranges anywhere from $1,500 to $3,000. So depending on what your publication budget is, um, again, that can be, that can be a factor. Uh, journal rankings, you know, generally that was the, the main number that people always looked at in terms of what, what journal they want to pick. You know, the bigger the number, the, you know, supposedly the better the journal. Um, but that is not always the case. Um, you know, some journals that are much lower are, you know, actually more viewed. Um, it's just that a lot of their research in, in those journals are just not published or cited in other work. So their numbers are going to be a little bit lower. Um, but two places to look for is uh, at the, I believe, uh, Thomson Reuters does the, the impact factors. Um, and then there's another, there's another journal ranking system called uh, Scamago. Uh, pay attention to journal requirements. Um, again, not all journals are the same. Not all sections are the same, like abstracts, um, results, how you're supposed to present the figures. Um, and so when you are getting ready to publish and put all your stuff together um, and submit online, that becomes a big factor because some of these submissions can take anywhere from an hour to two hours. Uh, you have to put your figures in a certain way. You have to put them in a certain format. You have to upload your abstract separately. So pay attention to all that because, again, that's actually very time-consuming. And some of it actually might be longer to do that part than to actually write the manuscript itself. Uh, if you are publishing... Uh, you know, anywhere from phase one to, to phase three data or even phase four data. Nowadays, in order to get published, you have to put that information on clinical trials registration. Um, that is something that a lot of journals are looking for. You need to get that um, NIH number uh, for the registration. And even now, they are starting to crack down on you even uploading the data to that website. So generally, a lot of times, people were just uploading the study information uh, to uh, clinicaltrials.gov. But now they're actually requiring you to make sure to get that data up there in a certain amount of time so that everyone can see publicly uh, the results of your study. Um, there are a couple different registries. It may not necessarily be clinicaltrials.gov that you would put your information onto. Um, the WHO organization also has uh, a number of um, government agencies that will accept uh, your, your data um, or your, your trial. Um, so that information can be uh, put up there. But as long as you're registered in some public registry, um, generally that will be fine for publication to um, any type of journal. So here is just a, some of the links that you can go to in order to find those, those public registries. Uh, for some of the trials, they're actually even asking you to submit some of the good clinical practices. So any of the investigators or authors that were part of that trial 
um, they do request that documentation. Um, some of them might even request that you have um, IRB approval, that you submit that information as well. Um, so please be cognizant of keeping all that information together um, for submission to uh, some of the journals. Uh, reporting standards. So for a lot of uh, randomized clinical trials, there is another step that you have to take when presenting your results. Um, there's a number of che checklists out there that require you to basically outline the, the number of patients or subjects that were enrolled, what arms they were enrolled in, um, how many dropped out or were incomplete based on you know, withdrawals or um, loss of follow-ups or adverse events. Um, so some of these journals actually require you to fill out this separate type of checklist. Uh, one of the more famous ones is the, the, the consort. Um, and so it's basically a 25-item checklist that focuses on um, your trial design, uh, the analysis, and um, how it was interpreted. Um, and basically, it's a nice flow diagram that presents your trial to the public in a very nice and, and, and clear way. Uh, this is just one piece of, of that checklist, as you can see. Um, it's making sure that you've identified your title and abstract. Um, you've outlined clearly what your, the background of the study was and the objectives, um, as well as methods and which your trial design and your type of participants that were, that were enrolled. But again, this is a 25-point uh, checklist. Uh, this is the example of the flow diagram, as you can see from eligibility all the way down to your analysis to the number of subjects enrolled. So I know, for example, um, a lot of journals require this, this type of checklist. So please you know, make sure that you, you have this when you're submitting um, for your manuscripts. Uh, authors. Uh, I love this, this picture here because this is kind of um, what you know, I saw in, in grad school. Um, basically, you have a whole list of authors. A bunch of people want to get involved in the manuscript that really never contributed. Um, so if you, if you kind of see this and you read this, it's, it's actually really funny. Um, so just being there, being in the lab, doesn't qualify you to be on the manuscript, um, just to let you know. So the, the reason I show this is because journals now are requiring all the authors to basically fill out a disclosure um, and to sign off stating that they, are, um, they contributed significantly to the manuscript, that they are fully aware of the results and the data and everything that's put into the manuscript. Um, so that is something that you have to worry about, and that's what you have to submit. Uh, the International Community of Medical Journal Editors is the one that has set the standards for this. Um, if you go to their website, they outline four criteria that must be met in order for an author um, to be listed. Uh, if the authors do not follow or fit all of these criteria, basically what you should do, if they did contribute it, something to the manuscript, that they be put in the disclosures or the acknowledgments. Um, but do be aware of this because um, Nowadays, everyone basically has to fill out a form stating that they meet um, these four criteria or the corresponding author who is responsible for the manuscript um, has to sign off for these guys or for the, for the authors. And as I mentioned, um, if you haven't met all those four criteria, the next best place to put that information is in your disclosures, um, acknowledgement, and of course, funding. If you are funded for the research, uh, if it's an investigator-initiated trial and you received you know, money from the NIH or from the FDA, um, to make sure that you put that grant number um, in that section. Uh, 
Uh, another thing to worry about is the references. Uh, this is becoming a very big thing now because basically when you submit your manuscript to um, the journal, when you submit it electronically, it actually, the system will now scan through your references and make sure that they match because what they do now is they link everything electronically. So when they publish everything online, all your references are going to have a link to the actual article. So if your references aren't formatted correctly, they're going to come back to you and tell you to reformat your references in a correct format that gets recognized by the system. If you have anywhere from 50 to 70 or 50 to 100 references, this uh, can take a lot of time. So what I usually suggest is to have a reference program. Uh, one of the top ones is EndNote, uh, but there are a variety of other reference programs out there that basically capture all the information in terms of authors, title, where it's published, um, journal name, and things like that. And basically, it's, um, they have like a site while you write, which you can just say, okay, I want this reference, and it goes right into your paper. So it keeps everything tracked. If you end up cutting and pasting somewhere else, it re-updates all the reference numbers. But it's a good way to keep track of all the references and make sure that they're formatted correctly. In addition, the journals all have different formats. So luckily, these programs take that into account, and you can quickly change the reference format if, say, if you have a, a new submission to go to. Um, so just play around with these programs if you haven't already. Um, EndNote is my favorite one. Um, that works the best. And also, it can pull the information from uh, public databases, so you don't even have to type anything in anymore. Uh, finally, just one of the things to, to look out for is your ORCID ID. Um, nowadays, with everything being published and so many different people being placed in, or so many different authors being placed into the databases, um, it's very hard to keep track of who is on a manuscript. So, for example, my name, Robert Taylor, if you put that into the database, you are going to get I don't know how many responses back from PubMed. Okay? Um, I don't even have a middle name, so that makes it even more difficult for me to even find my manuscripts. Um, so what this group has done is every author now, if you sign up, you get a unique ID, and that ID will follow you on every manuscript that you submit. So when you add all the authors, it's going to ask for that ORCID ID, um, and that is a way to make sure that that manuscript is actually mine. Um, ResearchGate is another online portal. Um, it's a way to disseminate your published work. It's almost like a, a Facebook page for researchers. You go on there, you log in, and this site actually will also scan your, all the publications with your ORCID ID, or it scans the, the databases with your name, um, and it pulls it into, into your profile. Uh, there's a, other portals. Um, Kudos is, is a new one. Um, take a look at that if you get a chance. That's also a very nice way to um, kind of have a, a profile of all of your, your manuscripts. And I'm just going to end on plagiarism. Uh, nowadays, with everything being online, it's very easy to be tempted to pull information from other manuscripts and do a quick copy and paste, or even um, grab figures from a very old manuscript thinking that no one will ever check. Nowadays, there are programs out there that will scan all of that. Um, one of the programs that a lot of the journals are subscribing to is Authenticate. Uh, basically, when you submit, it's going to put your manuscript through the system and scan for anything that's similar. Um, and at the end, you'll get a plagiarism score, basically. The higher the number, the more that you plagiarize. Um, so journals are looking at that, and they will come back to you and say, too much has been copied. You need to reformat and, and rework your, 
your manuscript. So um, journals are subscribing to it. Institutions can subscribe to it. You can do it as an individual. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a fee-based system, but I would look into it because nowadays they are catching a lot of people um, with plagiarism. And I will end on that. And if you have any questions... Um, the public registries will only allow the data to be di disseminated publicly. Um, what data, you know, if, it, if a, a company withholds certain data, um, you know, those registries are not going to, uh, actually they would be able to kind of prevent that because in, if, if the data is being submitted for the FDA, um, that information has to be put on clinicaltrials.gov. So whether it's positive or negative, that trial has to be registered with the clinicaltrials.gov. The good news is some journals are now accepting uh, negative results, whereas before they didn't. So if it's uh, you know, a non-closely sponsored study, you could still get it published even though it came out negative. They're actually encouraging that now. Not too many, but some. Yeah, no, it was, it was a combination, but the editors would as too, because they felt, okay, you know, why would their readers read through a whole long article just to come to the conclusion that the drug was inactive? So this was sort of left over from the basic science days, right? I mean, why would you do that? But it's important for human trials to know that there may have been five studies that were not positive for the one study that was positive and published, so. All right, thank you, Dr. Taylor. Uh, and then our next speaker is Dr. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Hoffman. Good morning. Hopefully your stamina will be rewarded for, for staying and we'll be able to give you something of value. So first, uh, my name is Mark Hoffman. I have nothing to disclose. The opinions expressed here are purely my own. The learning objectives here are potential solutions for increasing clinical trial participation. Now, my esteemed colleagues have told you about study design, publication, a number of analyses, but I can tell you, with all due modesty, that nothing happens until you do what, I, what I'm about to tell you, and you do it correctly. And that is the true pain in pain trials is that pain point of study enrollment. Right? And apologies on, on the, some, some of the uh, colors, but what it says up here is, you can't help them if you can't find them. I'm going to give you some background information and some statistics just to kind of set the stage for what I'm about to talk about. So here, our challenge, right? Active clinical trials have increased 20-fold in the last decade. Here's where it gets interesting. Over 80% of your clinical trials fail to meet your primary enrollment goal lines. Now, many of them eventually complete, but a good number of them take twice the original timeline. The impact of that in time and money, and for those of you that are representatives of the pharmaceutical industry here, can be anywhere from 600000 to $3 million a day. Think about that for just a second. 
Over 50% of your clinical trial sites underperform, and that is, fail to meet their enrollment guidelines, their, their enrollment targets. And half of those don't put in a single patient. The cost to a clinical, to a clinical trial, which eventually gets passed on down the line, can be anywhere from $35,000 to $50,000 per site that does not perform, and then that has a knock-on effect on your timelines. Today, your site selection process remains a very subjective process, and I'll talk about some of the ways that that's done in a few slides. There are increasing time and financial pressures on sites, and strangely, and I, this is something that I, I can get the reference, don't have it handy, but I, I found this very interesting in an article that subject enrollment has been decreasing by 10% year over year for the last decade. Now, I heard uh, at a presentation yesterday that many other areas have, have been spoiled for choice in terms of the drugs in development, and I think diabetes and, and oncology is probably the most notable, but that, there's, that there hasn't been the choice and the advancements in the pain world. Well, the fact is, over the last five years, there's been almost 7,000 studies started, over 3,000 active pain studies going on today. Now, because of many of the things that you've heard about in a number of the other programs, the complexity of these studies has continued to increase. Not only just the, the sheer complexity, but in terms of how this is being measured in terms of eligibility criteria, there's been a huge increase in the number of eligibility criteria, which now averages around 50 criteria per study. As you would imagine, there's significant com competition for these patients. The regulatory requirements, you've heard something about from soup to nuts here, as far as what the regulators are looking for. And keep in mind that most of us are not looking to satisfy just one regulator. And God forbid that any two would agree. So it, it, the design of clinical trials has continued to become increasingly complex. And the cost of clinical trials has increased by over 60%. Well, hopefully that last figure shouldn't be a surprise, having heard all of the other things that I've talked about. Now, it's interesting to note, and I, I should you know, give full disclosures that I've been on the dark side in the pharmaceutical industry and CROs for a quarter of a century, and something that has happened over that quarter of a century is we have, as an industry, made tremendous advances in clinical trial efficiency. Some of these things have made the implementation of clinical trials easier, faster, more efficient. Things like electronic data capture. Now, for the, for, for the pharmaceutical and the CROs, that's been a wonderful thing, okay? What that's done is it shifted the burden to the sites, but it has net, net made the clinical trials process more efficient. Many of you have heard of things such as risk-based monitoring. The list kind of goes on and on, but the one thing I can tell you is that we have not appreciably changed the way we do site, and pa site identification and patient identification over the last quarter of a century. So here's a list of terms that, quite frankly, get used synonymously. Site identification, site recruitment, patient recruitment, patient identification. Most people consider these in one bucket. What I'm here to talk to you about today is really where it should start, and that is with patient identification, because as an industry, I would submit to you that 
we really do things backwards. And that is, we look for sites, and I'll go into some of the details as to how we look for the sites, but retrospective analysis being one, I'll talk in a little bit more detail, then we look to recruit the sites. Now, there are a number of ways that sites are recruited, and there are many companies out there that are very good at this. Some have developed methods for being very efficient. Some have talked about just-in-time site enrollment. And I would submit to you that when you bring up a site very quickly that has no patience, it is the rough equivalent of peeing in a dark suit. You will get a really good warm feeling, but absolutely nobody will notice. For patient recruitment, <laughs> Joe's sitting there going, oh, God, not next year. <laughs> for, for patient recruitment, okay, and, and I want to make the distinction here that patient recruitment is different than, pa than patient identification because patient recruitment includes things such as advertising and promotion. Everything as simple as uh, a brightly colored photocopy of got diabetes in your, or got pain in your waiting room to hearing the ads on your, your local radio or TV station. Now, there's a lot of great thought that goes into this. I, I can tell you personally, as an insomnia, I have seen every Mr. Sleep or Mr. Sleep Pillow ad in the world because these guys know when do you put on insomnia ads at 3 o'clock in the morning. Nobody wants to put on, nobody would put on an insomnia ad at 2 in the afternoon, except because all the insomniacs are actually sleeping, quite frankly. So there's a lot that goes on. Social media is, is a real um, sort of Pandora's box, if you will, and, and has had an interesting, it's a double-edged sword in that it has opened up clinical trial recruitment and has raised awareness, but by the same token, there's information that is getting out there, and, and there's, there was a well-publicized um, incident, if you will, not too long ago, where somebody who was you know, very, very well-known on social media, a, a media star, if you will, was talking about a therapy. And I think it was, it was actually the FTC had to tell this um, celebrity to stop making medical claims because people were following this advice in throngs just at face value. So that's, that's the kind of influence that social media can have. The other thing, and this is, is something that I, I actually wrote a paper on this last year, is there's actually the possibility of within social networks and within um, patient advocacy groups that participate in these types of things, where if people are participating on a study, there's the very real possibility of somebody saying, I'm on such and such a study. Anybody else got diarrhea? Anybody else getting headaches? And the opportunity to, quite frankly, de facto unblind a study is out there in the social media, and right now there's not a thing that anybody can do about it. So in terms of patient identification, and I'll go into this in, in a little more detail, there are a couple of different ways that this can be done. In the current state of site identification, the retrospective data that goes into this is things like lab data, past performance, the literature, clinicaltrials.gov, where sponsors are going back to the well. And I mentioned earlier that there's a tremendous competition right now. Well, the fact is all of the sponsors know who does good work and where these folks are. You can look at clinicaltrials.gov. You can look at recent manuscripts. The, the same 
low back pain guys, the same peripheral neuropathy guys, the same diabetic pain guys are, are in these cooperative groups and these collaborative groups are, are on the publications. The reality is, for anybody that has ever done anything in the financial world, past performance is no guarantee of future success. So all of this data, looking backwards, is the equivalent of looking in your rearview mirror and now knowing with great certainty where you've been, goes into your site identification. In the site identification, you look at all of this past data, you look at various sources to compile a list, and then you hope, you pray, you throw a dart, and you hope that patients come out of this. And sites will be selected largely based on a, a subjective criteria. Now these sites have the burden to find these patients. They need to advertise, they need to beg, plead, cajole, referral networks. What I would tell you, and I'll go back to a statistic that I gave you at the top of this talk, is that thirty-five dollars to $50,000 will be spent getting that site start up. And the reality is, if the patients aren't there, they're not there. There's nothing that you can do. No amount of motivational visits from your sponsor, bonuses, you know, uh, uh, taking somebody out to lunch, whatever it might be, newsletters where you actually embarrass somebody, that's not going to create a patient that's not there. So what we need as an industry is we need a solution that is going to meet the needs of both the sponsors and the sites. On the study site side, we need something that will be able to automate the process. We need something that will take the burden off of the coordinators because they, there's a tremendous investment in time that is being put in at the, at the site level, potentially with no return on that investment. And something that will be able to give the patients, I'm sorry, will be able to give the sites greater opportunity for patient engagement and freeing up your study staff. And as studies become more patient-centric, this gives the study staff the opportunity to be more patient-focused. The financial benefits should be fairly obvious in that anything that helps you find patients, anything that improves your return 